This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. I don't. Um, my co-host today is Mark Muncy from Erie, Florida. And our amazing guest today is the one, the only, Max Gladstone. Hey, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Oh shit, that's me. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I told you I paid you five bucks. Be Max Gladstone. Okay. Yep. <laughs> we talk about what we're drinking. I am drinking. I decided I don't have my um, swag today, but um, I have a vanilla porter by Breckenwood. Breckenridge Brewery. I promise this is the first one. That's what's happening. Mark, what are you drinking? Uh, I am uh, on my uh, seizure meds tonight, so I'm uh, sticking with the coffee. So I have another coffee shop of horrors classic, the I Want to Believe, which is their banana cream. And oh my gosh, is it amazing. I don't think I've had their banana cream. Oh my god, it's you know, to die for literally this is tell, tell me about this is that is that like a, a roast or a bean or is that a yeah it's it's they, it's, they grind it there they make their own coffees it's oh, fantastic based out of central florida they have a couple locations and they do all kinds of fun late flavors and uh they they tribute a bunch of them to various authors uh they have uh al going back bram stoker lifetime winner we had him on a few episodes ago he they had just made one of his collection of short stories, Tribal Screams, into a, a Florida coffee, and it's incredible. So That's so cool. Wow. Day, Max, hypothetically, you call them, they'll make a coffee for you. That's yeah, how they pretty do much. it. <laughs> They're making an eerie Florida coffee, so they'll let anybody get one. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't undersell. Don't undersell. You're like, so you're so exclusive. You've got your own coffee now. Yeah, That's exactly. Cute. Yeah, at some point. I swear, Mark, if we do one of these episodes and you, you're like, what am I drinking today? I'm drinking my own coffee. In Florida. Yes, <laughs> yes. Don't you wish you were like me? Yeah. <laughs> Yours yeah. for the low, low price of three installments of 1999. Yes. You can Venmo me at. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be a link included with this podcast on how you order. Yeah. Um, Max, what are you drinking? After our Skillshare referral. Uh, what am I? Re- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was gold. Uh, I am working on the end of a Laphroaig quarter cask right here, which is um, really nice. I picked this one up uh, on the way back from the UK back when leaving our houses was still a thing that we did. Um, And yeah, I've been nursing it for a while. And I I might hit the end of the bottle during this podcast. I might not. We'll see. Well, it's more likely than not around us. Um, I will say that it's funny because there's a gin that I absolutely love that you can only get in Spain. So anytime I go over mm. or my friends go over to any airport, because it's in the airports too, but right, yeah. they bring me back and I literally ran out two days ago of this Ugh. gin and it made me so sad. And I was like, what is the likelihood I could at least get to the airport before they kicked me back out again from anywhere? <laughs> yeah, I've never been in a situation for years where there was a real risk of me running out of scotch. Now, you know, we have an excellent liquor store that pivoted really well early in the pandemic to doing delivery. Um, I trust them enormously, and they have proven more than willing to drop large 
uh, crates of wine off of my house. So I think a, a whiskey run is, or, you know, they're doing the running, I guess. I think that's in my near future, but it, it's a sort of sad testament to how long this thing has lasted when the liter bottles start running empty, the big old thing of body wash that you got at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> needs, you know, it's like, <laughs> but you know, we press on endlessly against the current, as the man says. We were talking actually um, earlier because I said it was funny we all knew this wasn't going to magically go away. Well, most right. of us, that's yeah. what I'm going to say. <laughs> most of us didn't think that. Um, yeah, yeah, the year of magical thinking. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting because as this year has started off and things, um, you know, are still not great with COVID at all, like the opposite, actually, now that we're having new strains. I have an office in the UK and I always tell the guy there, I'm like, so could you not be number one at this thing of creating new viruses? Can you yeah, pick something yeah. else to be number one at? Right? <laughs> and um, I was saying that it reminds me of Ghostbusters 2, that slime under the city that's just growing. That no <laughs> I was like, That's what I feel like is happening. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark leaking out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mark like, Apley said, we just all need a, this thing. Your love you know, keeps keeping And that will solve fire. the problem. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, you know, I saw Katy Perry sing fireworks a couple of nights ago. That's, uh, you know. Exactly. Fireflies. Food for the soul. Um, okay. Max, you're an author now that we've gotten all this out of the way. I have been so accused. Yes. That's what I heard. Um, do you want to tell anybody who is in a dark, dingy hole, aka their house, that doesn't know who you are, a little bit about your writing? Slimy, my home this is. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Let's see. If I were, uh, you know, real grown-up, um, responsible marketing forward author, I would have uh, all of my books right back here to point at. Instead, I have Douglas Adams and Brian Stavely's last book and Moby Dick. Um, but here's the, uh, I do have the Spanish edition of <laughs> Last First Snow, which is the first slash fourth novel in the craft sequence here, which I just love this cover. It's so that great. It's awesome. It's shrink-wrapped. They sell, they sell books shrink-wrapped, which yeah, is yeah. extremely cool. Um, so, and, oh, and uh, here is the cover of the novella that Amal Matar and I co-wrote, This Is How You Lose the Time War which uh, won Hugo and Nebula and a bunch of stuff last year. Hugo and Nebula, the Fire, Phoenix Award. I have a rock from the Shirley Jackson people, which is awesome. so cool. When you're nominated, oh, wow. they send the you a rock. It's, I love that. I, it's, it's a rock. It's Shirley Jackson. Apparently, they, we didn't get to go to the nomination ceremony at ReaderCon because there was no ReaderCon um, in person this year. But uh, what they do is they have the nominee party and then... Uh, somebody walks around saying you know congratulations on your Shirley Jackson nomination here is your rock yes. the idea is to I think get the person who wins uh, a little nervous and looking for the exits come Sunday but <laughs> it's just the coolest thing so me who uh so I am a fantasy and science fiction author and game designer and sometimes screenwriter um I have written in addition to This Is How You Lose the Time War, which is, uh, and uh, other most recent book, which I will come back with a copy of. 
See, they're all in the office. They're just not conveniently located. Right. Um, Empress of Forever, which uh, giant galaxy hopping, uh, Technicolor, 80s synthwave soundtrack, space opera. Um, and uh, the also the craft sequence of post-industrial fantasy novels. I say I was calling them urban fantasy for a really long time before that urban fantasy kind of locked very specifically into the thing that it is now, which is an awesome thing, but is very much like our world with monsters. Whereas what I'm doing is a secondary fantasy world that's at a stage of cultural and technological development where they're confronting a lot of the problems that our world is is confronting like um you know what do you do in post-industrial society how do you have a world that isn't ruled by kings and gods anymore um that is something like equitable how do you confront climate change and the challenge of late capitalism how do you create meaning in a universe like that how do you stop people from poisoning your local undead god that you chopped up and made into your water treatment facility you know like that kind of stuff that uh oh, that kind people of confront stuff. every day yeah yeah so that that starts with <laughs> three parts dead and then the most recent book in that series oh here's just great we got five novels here Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, this is cool. This is the um, the omnibus that Tor published of all of the different eBooks. So you can't get it in print, but they're all there. And then this is Ruin of Angels, the, the cover of the sixth book. Oh, so cool. a lot of fun. And then I've written a couple of interactive fiction pieces. This is not a capsule intro, I'm so sorry. I've written a couple of interactive fiction pieces, like sort of interactive books, like choose your own adventure style, choose your own path style things set in the world of the craft sequence, choice of the deathless and deathless, the city's thirst. And I also created piece of interactive television called Wizard School Dropout, which is extremely cool, uh, which is working with Sandy Perick of uh, F and Funny Productions that came out on Echo like towards the end of 2019. So I think uh, oh, wow. it's out there if anybody's stuck in their home and wants to play an interactive story about an upbeat, spunky, young uh, wizard from a magic school type of universe who decides, screw it, uh, leaves magic school and has to go and uh, make her way in Los Angeles, paying rent and figuring out how mundane society works. Oh my God, that sounds fun. And that's on Echo? Yeah, that's on Echo, E-K-O. Oh, very cool. Look at yeah, all so that stuff. I, yeah, I keep busy. Them? Oh, and then there's Serial Box, uh, Book Burners, in which you came in from the cold, two serials that I've been involved with and that are extremely great. Um, one is a Magic Spies story and one is a sort of working for the Vatican, trying to stop evil books from taking over the world. Great, really cool yeah. collaborative projects, both of them. That is awesome. Okay, so um, you've done you've done a couple things. <laughs> a couple things. I think I think I think a lot of people have have, or I think almost everyone in this business just has their fingers in so many pies right now. I just uh, machine gun them at people when they ask me about it. No, I I think it's true, and I think it's great to hear the breadth of create that you've done. Like I think that's phenomenal. But let's let's grab our beer and go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Where did we begin? Where did this all start? This writerness that you have pontificated on. Look at me. Oh man, big words. <laughs> I mean, worst. Mark, I know you're impressed. I was right like, there. that was five yeah, syllables. Right, right. Jeez. Yeah. I have to find my surplus and my uh, miter. <laughs> Is the miter the staff? It feels like the. It should be. It's the should thing be, that you smite yeah, people with, right? But I think yep. it miters the coat, isn't it? I think the miter is the 
yeah is the is the, is the, the cody kind of stoli thing yeah yeah oh my god is there a name for the staff or is it just a staff it's that it's something like oh gosh oh i'm my history all right okay anyway I'm, third diversion can we i'm get failing it i'm failing an episcopalian here sorry, um, sorry. <laughs> uh no 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 so uh Gosh, I mean, I've been writing since way before I can remember. Like my parents tell stories about finding me with notebooks, like coloring in the notebooks, but coloring inside the lines. Like I was writing in cursive in the notebooks before I could read or write. Um, speaking of before one could read or write, that's actually my son knocking on the door right now. He's just under two. So I'm gonna go sneak off, sing him to sneak sleep. Off. We'll take a quick break, we'll be right back. All right, see you a sec. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. We're back. We're just talking about the many ways Michael Bean has died. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we were talking while you were off. <laughs> That's good. That's good. They just yeah. announced him as a guest at a convention coming up that we're excited for. So we're. Oh, fantastic! Fantastic. Mike Bean, Sean Bean. Is there? Is Michael there just Bean. Michael, Michael Bean. Bean. He was killed. Uh, he was in the Terminator and killed. He was Corporal Hicks in Aliens. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, wow. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of there are a lot of bean deaths going around then. Yeah, a lot of them die yeah. a lot. I wouldn't have that name in like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Michael Bean and Sean Bean, they tend to die quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Okay, so we were talking about your origin story. Look yeah. how. Yeah. So my origin story is just that I, you know I always really loved writing. I liked telling stories. I liked writing them down. I liked reading them. I liked everything about the process in late high school. So I moved from doing, when I say fan fiction, I feel a little, a little odd because that uh, term has such a very specific set of meanings and cultures around it right now here where I'm sitting in 20, early 2021 that at least it didn't have when I was initially getting involved in it, at least the way that I was getting involved in it in the mid to late nineties. Um, so at that, at that point, you know, no, nothing wrong with what's going on now. I'm extremely happy to see all of the many profusive different ways that fan fiction has changed shape and become things. Um, and, and the, the different faces that it's presented over the years, but I got in through, um, uh, alt Starfleet RPG and that kind of work on Usenet, right. Where it, these would be sort of Usenet forum games where you were not role-playing in the sense that you were rolling dice, but role-playing in the sense that you were writing a story about what your character was doing. Um, so I had a character on that for a really long time and loved writing for in that small sort of role-playing audience that way and moved from there to doing um, stuff that I would still call fan fiction, even though it wasn't in established universes. They're like the old Electric Ferret um, comic book universe battles site, if you remember that at all. This is oh like, wow. Yeah, so this is this mists of time stuff, right? Um, Deep cut. Wow. Yeah, it feels like it for, for me. So, so there was a tiny little adjunct to that site called the Fantasy Powers League for a while, where Serge, the guy who ran Seabub, uh, would... Um, he built this little PHP system where you could create your own superheroes and then have them 
battle each other. And so it turned rapidly into, because the system was very simple, it turned rapidly into a kind of competitive creative writing exercise. So you're, try you're trying to create characters who weren't so much like going at it in the gladiatorial arena as create characters who were like ontologically impossible to defeat or who are just so interesting that you never wanted them to lose in the same way you don't really want like Batman to lose to Darkseid even though Darkseid is like literally a god and Batman is like a cool guy with daddy issues like it, you just don't um anyway so so uh so so it was really fun and I got involved in that created some characters there and then started getting involved in the fiction scene that was sort of burgeoning around it and Toward the end of high school, I wrote this 200,000 some odd word novel that was basically a bring out your dead kind of situation. I asked everybody who was involved, any characters that they had that they didn't mind or wanted to get rid of or wanted to have go out in some sort of big over the top heroic fashion in a grand apocalyptic crossover scenario, just kick them my way and I'll roll them into this thing. And I did this big apocalypse event for the site and it was enormous fun. and. Um, at the end of it, it was like a year long project for me and people loved it. And I thought, wow, this was great. I think I did it really well. Like it's you know, in a lot of ways, I'll, I'll go back to that writing and still be really excited by it, even though I'm, I think a better writer now. And oh gosh, you know, people get paid for this. This is something that you can make a life out of. It's not like an easy life, but you, you can do it. Let me, let's try. In addition to all the other things we're going to try, let's, let's try that. So ever since I never stopped trying to write novels, get them out, submit them, finish them, polish them. It's, it's just always been something that I've loved doing. I No, I think, and that's the important part is loving doing it. Yes. And yeah, yeah exactly. Doing it. If you can do something you love in life, I think it's amazing. So- Yeah, I think, uh, I think getting, I mean, like the, the sort of getting paid for it part at, at that point was just this realization. Oh, wait, oh, oh, this is, this is this is work. It's great work, and people are excited about it. That's that's a cool sort was a cool key uh, to turn for me. But since then, I mean, if if I were still writing books and not publishing them or publishing them in an independent kind of way, or even just writing fiction stories and passing them around to friends, it's like I've become so appreciative since I started doing the game commercially of the personal and artistic value of just sitting down with the keyboard for a long period of time that there's a, a daily practice and there's something really healing and cool and enormously fun about telling stories for your friends to read kind of whatever happens to them that's a purity that I kind of I keep trying to connect back with like a voltage I want to tap very nice how often do you think you get to tap that when you're doing your writing that's a good question um there, you know, the hard part of, hmm, every day that I'm sitting down and putting new words on the page, like once you break that initial barrier, the pen is down, your hands are on the keyboard, there comes this moment where the rest of the world really starts to melt away. And it's just you and the words and the moment that if you can get there, it's golden. <laughs> and the, 
challenge of, you know, challenge of growing up, the challenge of being in the business of it, and therefore starting to second guess your own intuitions about things and wondering, oh, you know, did I, and, and also having done it a lot, like, oh, did I do this differently last time? Should I be trying something else? You're always trying to push your own edges can start to make you self-conscious, make you doubt that moment. You can be overhearing yourself too much. It's like, um, it's like listening to your own voice on a few seconds delay. Oh, wow. I think that's, a, I think that's a, and then that's where things starts to trip up. So it's, it's this happy medium. You need to be able to bring your full creative attention and your full experience to bear on the story, but you want to, it to happen in such a way that it's all pointing in the same direction rather than carrying you off one direction or another. Eventually you learn to listen to that too. Like if you're starting to get distracted or, if you're starting to have these real doubts, the question is like, what's the most interesting or audacious thing to do next? Or why am I feeling this way? Probably you're feeling this way because there's, you're getting in your own way on some level. Maybe it's not the right scene that you're writing, even if it's the one that the outline says, or maybe it's, um, maybe you just need to step up and get a glass of water. Sometimes that happens. So it's, you know. No, it's, do you follow your outline rigorously? I, um, my process changes so much that it's hard to say. Um, I've done, I've written books that were extremely rigorously like three or four paragraphs for a chapter outlined. Mm -hmm. I've written books where the outline was just a sheaf of index cards and some of the index cards were like, they meet and okay. <laughs> At oh. least, you know, it's that's that, that point. Familiar. It starts to become like a structured improv exercise a little bit. You, you, you sort of, know that this scene needs to happen and what the outcome needs to be, but you're perfectly at liberty to establish what happens in it, which is a lot, is a fun place for me to play around in because I'll just invent stuff on the page that goes together. And I, I'll know that the fundamental dramatic glue is there to hold the scene as opposed to just kind of writing until I find a scene. Um, I've, you know, the, this uh, book that I'm getting close to finishing up right now is a complete stem to stern rewrite of a previous book. And I thought that I was initially going to be just rewriting the first chapter and gluing it together, but then I just kept writing it um, and letting things suggest themselves as they came. I was working a lot slower than I've worked on anything before um, because of new parenting and because I was trying to handwrite the whole project. And that oh. was really cool. And uh, I think slowing down gave new ideas more of a chance to emerge which was, which was a lot of fun. So that, that felt more like, uh, more like, I don't know, I've never sailed much, but like the one or two times I've been out on like an actual sailboat yeah. in a lake, you know, it, it sort of, you got to pay a lot of attention, but once in a while you can like catch the wind or you can figure out what you're supposed to be doing. And then, oh man, it's, it's like you're flying. Um, totally. So yeah. yeah, that's, uh, I, I don't know. How, well, I know how a lot of different writers do it. Um, I know how, or at least how they talk about doing it in public. Um, I think- Every, we, we talk to a ton of writers. Everybody does it differently. There are some people that are just, but by nature, they're just rigorous to some form that they have to be in. Mm -hmm. Whatever that form is, they're, they're sort of, it's religion to them almost. Like yeah. I'm going to do it's this- very ritualistic, yeah. And then- yeah, There's some, yeah. There are those that way. Like, I am li probably literally the worst at this because <laughs> take, 
the only time I ever do an outline, and it's not an outline, they're bullet points. Not even like a sentence bullet points, but right. I'm like, okay, these things, I just got to not forget about these things because I said in the last thing that I would mention these things, so I better mention them. But that's it. I'm like the worst at coming up because when I do that, I find that I get stuck if it's going in another direction Then I'm trying mm -hmm. to follow the... Like, I'm much better not following the map. Don't give me the map. I'll get there yeah. eventually. Like, when I, so I, I've often felt that way. Um, but I, um, I've often felt that way, like resistant. I was resistant to outlining for those exact reasons. Um, I started outlining when I was working on the Book Burners project, the cereal box serials, because you have a lot of different writers and you're all trying to coordinate around an overarching episodic story. So Margaret Dunlop was on that project. Um, introduced us to some of the techniques that TV writers use in a writer's room to try to break a season, a lot of note cards, a lot of push pins and cork boards and all that. And I found it very liberating because I could do a lot of the discovery writing at the note card stage um, rather than rather than trying to rigorously like roadmap out what the story absolutely needed to be, I could have an idea for a scene. I could scribble it down in a note card and pop it up on the corkboard and then think, oh, okay, well, how does it look? How does it look even written that way? Is that wrong? Maybe I can just tear up the, the note card and write a different one. You get that, once you get that seed crystal of the scene in your head, right? There's that, the, the, the way the whole thing kind of accretes on top okay. of it can accrete very quickly. You can kind of see, oh yeah, and then they'll be like in a, on a boat and boats on fire. And there's, you know, and then they, he's got to get the cross before he gets swept overboard. And, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, I see it. That's really cool. And then that doesn't need in its initial phase to be connected to anything, but you can start to see where that might fit into a cause and effect or what story might connect with that scene. So you can do a lot of the discovery writing in uh, this like really fast and loose playing around with things kind of way. Um, and then that turns into an outline, at least when I'm doing it, it turns into an outline that's about jotting down what you think is really exciting about the scene and like that kind of the texture of a fight that two characters might have over a plot issue or a relationship, the, um, the, the sudden revelation at the end of a scene you're giving yourself enough to get excited when you sit down to do the brickwork and the, the carpentry to make it work, which then you get to turn on a different part of yourself. The part that's about making the scene interesting stylistically or making the dialogue sing or finding the right moment to enter this dramatic unit. Um, so you kind of divide, take the, all the, the big fun bolus of writing or the orange and you chop it up into little pieces or, and then you, I don't know, you peel it and then you can use the peel, like you can sugar the peel Look for later consumption. Reality. We're about to get into the great British baking show here. In a yeah, moment. yeah, yeah. I, I'm just saying like they, they can, the one thing can, if approached in a particular way, be a whole bunch of different pieces and parts, all of which are useful in some way and can have their own particularities highlighted by deconstructing it in the kind of outlining fashion. Or you can just, you know, eat the orange, probably not without peeling it, but. You know what? I don't want you to judge me, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, didn't mean to, to cast aspersions. No, that's what we do. That's yeah, what we but, do. but like, there's so much magic in this and some people need, some people ritualize it. Yeah. And I 
often find myself ritualizing it and then breaking down the ritual later, realizing that maybe this particular, the thing that, I don't know, a lot of people that I know say is that you never really learn how to write, you just learn how to write this book, or you never learn how to write a book, you learn how to write this one. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a lot of truth to that. You need to keep your ears open. No, I, I think it's, I think it's good to learn things like being a writer. I think sometimes take people take for granted that like any good craft of any kind, there has to be more education and more evolution mm -hmm. on how you do it better. You're like, absolutely right. You can't just, you know, the, take a typewriter to a cabin in the woods and, you know, like whatever, generate the next novel and only live off of saltines and whiskey. Like, <laughs> Although that sounds kind of cool. Well, I mean, Wait, but, <laughs> you need some lemon to avoid scurvy and then you're Yeah, fine. something. Yeah, okay, and, you know. and you think that that's what happens, but it doesn't. And you have to find the, for me, I think it's important that writers find the way to keep going. Even if they have to use multiple tricks to keep the writing going and keep themselves going and keep themselves in love with the writing they're doing. Because yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it can get, especially if, um, you know, it's different phases when, Luckily for me at this stage, I have a couple series going that I have to keep going with, but I don't have, um, I'm, I'm the publisher. So I can't get yelled at by my <laughs> publisher for um, diverging exactly. But, you know, when you're paid to write a book or a write, paid to write a series or something, you and you have to produce something within the confines of kind of what you told them you were going to do or what they asked you to do. Yeah. You know, you have to find ways to keep yourself motivated to do that, you know? That's true. I think that's one of the reasons that people, you do see people getting kind of mid-series and feeling a little trapped. You um, early, what's a, what's a very nice, what's a, not, not even nice so much as kind way to put this. Um, well, <laughs> this is what, this is what's happened to me and I've seen it happen to friends too. Um, you, you, there, there's typically a now, I'm curious whether this happened to you when you were publishing. There's sort of a, after the first book that gets published, there's this like crisis of identity, of vision, of practice or praxis or whatever you want to call it, um, that culminates in this anxiety, depression kind of nexus. And that's in direct proportion to how big the first book broke. Um, and my, I've seen it happen to a lot of people. Um, I've seen a couple of people evade it. Generally, people who had extremely good mental health resources in place beforehand, which was not where I was when Three Parts Dead came out. Um, and my, my, my theory, my totally baseless, wild ass, I'm drinking whiskey on a Friday night theory is that- Those are the best theories. That's right. That's right. I'm just, I just like, I'm not a medical professional. I'm not, I'm not any kind of, I'm professional- making stuff up person. So, you know, take that with your yeah. Is that there's a, um, when you're, when you can do anything, you're Proteus, you get to change and transform. The next book can be anything that it has to be. You can tell any story that you want. Maybe you want to tell the same story that your D&D party ran through 10 years ago again and again and again. And that's fantastic. That's awesome. That's you. But nobody's telling you not to do that or that, it, that like they want to hear something different from you next time. Nobody's going to be upset if you turn in a, 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 like the same book with 
you know, it's, it's between you and the people that you love or your beta readers, or um, hopefully that group has some co-extension. Also, and, and conversely, if you want to like pop off and write a romance novel next, or if you've been writing romance novels all the time and your next dream is like extremely bloody Thomas Harris-esque psychological thriller, that's go. not a career decision, right? For you before you're out there in the public eye. It's, it's, it's just like, oh, I, let's see this thing. And, and after your first book comes out, there is this um, sense of, you know, you're a Proteus and you've been grappled. Like you need to be held until you stop changing shape in order to yield the thing that the system needs. Um, and that's, it's hard to figure out how to do the artistic thing, which is ultimately about, well, it's about a lot of stuff. It's about serving your reader. It's about people gathered around a table and being excited to listen to you tell a story or to hear a joke. It's about participating in a tradition of storytelling, of ritualized storytelling. It's about pushing the needle one step forward. Like whatever it is that gets you, that, that brings you to the page, it's about that. But then it becomes about this other thing and about this whole bunch of strangers who you've never met before, um, who are now super excited about your next book or, or, or curious at the very least. Um, and then you are also looking at yourself like, oh, do those, do those sales figures, does that reception, does that reflect what I am, who I am? Is that what I want? So that can be a real stumbling block for a lot of folks. Um, it certainly was for me, you know. Well, I was gonna ask you on your series, uh, what I think is fascinating is how much um, fan input can potentially have, depending on how engaged you are with your fans. Because mm -hmm. they, it's, you know, it's funny when I sometimes see series that take turns in, in a direction, like they're going this way and then they slowly start turning and they're going this way. And I go, was this the author's choice? Was this the publishing house's choice? Or did just fan input going, I want to hear more about this, drive it? And I've talked to a lot of authors that talk about how the fans, in a way, kind of get excited about some part of it, and they want to see some more of that part of it. So you're kind of like, okay, cool. I can write about that part of it. I can... <laughs> yeah, you find yourself drawn, right? Oh, this excites people. Let's, let's go for it. It is a bit of a... No, tightrope is maybe overselling it, but it's a, it's a tension that you have to negotiate, right? Because as in a writer's workshop scenario, a, a reader or a responder saying, I want to know more about this. I'm so interested in this aspect. I'm so interested in the monks. The monks are really cool. May mean that you have exactly the right amount of the monks in your story. Right. And that yeah. you do not need any more monks. That if you were to continue to explain, it would kind of cheapen them or, or, or dull the mystery. We call um, that the midichlorian complex? Yeah, I was about to say that you and I are a perfect example of this. Like, oh, oh, we can go down such a path about what I feel was done to Darth Vader by episodes one, two, and three. Uh, yeah, oh, 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 I, man. I literally think Indeed. they took one of the oh, best right. bad guys in history mm -hmm. and made him into a whiny asshole. And I was like, they did him dirty. It's true. Yep. It was terrible because he was the epic. Like you thought of bad guys, raw Darth Vader. He was Darth in Vader. the top list, top five every time. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that it is fascinating part about writing. So, did what influenced your decision on your series, though? 
what drove the evolution of it? Did you always have the series in mind? Um, I always, well, from when I started writing Three Parts Dead, I knew that I wanted to write a fantasy series that was, that was exploring a whole world. That's to say, I wanted to be able to move around. I wanted to be able to feature different characters from different backgrounds rather than the standard epic fantasy approach of having like your adventuring party that's the sort of, um, you know, there's one elf and one dwarf and one tree person and whatever, and they're going to go to the elf city and the tree person city and the dwarf city, and then we're going to reach the, the conclusion, right? It's a and perfectly fine formula. That everybody hates. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's, I mean, it's it's a perfectly fun and good formula and spine. But I was the challenge there is you never, unless you're engaged in a project that's as creatively enormous as I don't know the Forgotten Realms universe or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. You, you don't get in the standard epic fantasy approach like the book that's all about the elves from the elves' perspective while the big quest is going on. You don't have like the elf book, um, <laughs> which means that you see a lot of the, you see this big and diverse and complicated fantasy universe from one normative perspective. Uh, you go to a place and like, this is where all the sneaky people live. <laughs> yeah. And that's a little weird uh, for a lot of different reasons. And it also, but even taking it on its face, you know, you gotta wonder like, what's it like to just be one of the sneaky people and hang out there like what what's what's life in this place look like what how does what are what different political parties are there inside the sneaky people what factions what do like sneaky people teenagers do to rebel do they like go and i don't know wear bow ties and try to work in accounting or how does that how does that go down so um that, so that that was driving me initially. I wanted something with the with the space to tell a whole world story about a lot of different people who are facing what I was seeing at that point and still do is kind of global challenges that aren't rooted in any one particular dark lord who needs to be defeated or this or that. Um, and that's where it kicked off. And I found myself spinning back to earlier characters and settings more than I was expecting, partially because people were excited to see what was going on with them again, partially because I was interested. I found myself mm -hmm. thinking, oh, well, and then the what lines that were initially intending to be divergent, I couldn't resist seeding continuity in there, some of which was obvious and some of which I ended up having to edit out in earlier drafts, but was still there in the back of my head. And then meta plot started showing up. <laughs> So some of it's just the, the natural urge to tie things together and, and bring threads to a satisfying narrative conclusion. When you have things in uh, intention, you want resolution. At least I do. Um, it's that sort of long run, like, uh, sorry, it's like that long run Philip Glass thing. Like we're just gonna hold here. You're not gonna get the resolution note for the next 45 minutes and then you get it. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think I've been, I have paid attention to what excites fans about characters, um, who they're interested in seeing again, why um, I've paid attention to when reception for a book or for a particular character in a book sort of skews 
differently from my expectation because you just don't know the book goes out there in the world you're not in control of the reading of it you know why did you write it this particular way because you had some intimation something that if you could have said it more simply you would have said it more simply and more directly maybe the reader is smarter than you are in, in this particular way they can they're forced to pick up the lexical pieces that have been scattered and make some sense out of them without reference to your explanations or justifications. So then you can- Jericho, any sci-fi fan in the entire universe. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, right. I resemble that remark. <laughs> I was going to say sci-fi, I'm, I'm a fan of sci-fi, but it, I, I've met some so diehard sci-fi fans and I really appreciate the crap out of them, but man, they will- <laughs> dissect the crap out of something and every subtlety in the world and you're like i didn't even intend to do that you know but it's great it's great right like yeah. maybe you did on some level like some deep subconscious level there's some force that encouraged you whether it was inattention or whatever to put the thing on the page and then somebody jumped off of it um yeah fingers crossed there's also the like the writerly sleight of hands thing right i'm forgetting who whose trick this was but um Oh man, if I could remember, it would be so good because this is a science fiction author was pondering writing a book set, a sort of thriller-like near future science fiction book and was stymied as many people I know are about writing the gun bits. Because if you want to write like a you know near future science fictional adventure and it's not, I don't know, set in the world of darkness or something, it's reasonable to expect that a gun will show up at some point. And uh, gun people are notoriously persnickety about how the gun works. Um, it, it has to have so many rounds and no more, no fewer. No, you don't cock that thing like that this didn't come out in 1987 it only came out in 1986 and 1988 but not in 1980s you know so, so there's there are people with voluminous uh, like uh, wikipedia levels of gun knowledge and every, and somehow magically every single one of them reads every book that has a gun in it and then is after the author on uh, reddit this is the sort of the myth right um and the uh, the thriller author who is consulting with our science fiction author friend said, oh, well, here's my way around that. It's absolutely true. But then what you need to do is you just, if you're talking about it, it's a Walter P. P. K., you just insert the magical word modified yes. in there. Yes. So it's, it's a modified Walter PPK. And then all of a sudden, all of that like Wikipedia knowledge is grinding into gear to figure out how you could possibly make a fully automatic Walther PPK with the parts available to this guy in this space. And, and, and then they're like really excited and sending you emails. I was thinking about how you could modify and this and that and the other thing. And then like your gun diagrams, and maybe you're starting to get a little bit nervous, but all you have to say is, oh yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Thanks a lot. That's, that's, you know, you that's got how it. The gunsmith messaged me and told me he was going to do that. Yeah. yeah right. That's exactly it. Yep. 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 That's, that's also for, since I do a lot of history stuff, that's what I have to do. Cause I know they're going to pick apart anything I put in. Mm -hmm. you know, if I mix up one date, if I mix up one thing, it throws away everything, especially since mine's folklore and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, you know, because they're really wanting to pick apart, you know, oh, the Mothman sighting happened on Wednesday, not Sunday. What are you oh, gosh. About? Yeah. Wow. You know, yeah. And, and that must that. be intimidating. Uh, it's, it's a little crazy, some of that. So that's when you've got to do the, okay, so this was told this way and this was sent, said this way and this is how I heard it. And then suddenly it's, okay, 
you know, now because that's exactly how I heard it. That's how I read it. You know, and, and that's like wonderful, that. so, yeah, man. That's hey, it works for Herodotus, right? It's like, the same secret. It's yeah, same that's secret. so cool. I, so I have a question. All. Yeah. When you were, uh, oh, let's see, let's say, so I know Rothfuss recommended you mm-hmm. on one of his uh, streams or a podcast, and that uh, was what brought you to my attention because I had missed it. And, um, and super when, cool you know, him. Yeah, when Patrick yeah. mentioned something, I gotta, I gotta pick it up. He got yeah, me for sure. on you and uh Murderbot Chronicles by Martha Wells at the same time. And I was like, Oh, oh wow. I was all Tough sci-fi competition. For, That's I great. Was sci-fi for six months. It was great. Uh, but, um, so when that happens, that did, you know, had, had you talked to him Had you met him before? Is that how it happened? Or did he just find you? Um, so that was sometimes it's a complete and total surprise. I had met Pat at um, a small convention called Veracon that was used to be, and I think it's, it's currently in hiatus mode, even setting aside the pandemic, but used to be put on by the Harvard Radcliffe Science Fiction Association in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So like the Harvard Students um, Science Fiction Association. And um, so I was invited as a local author, Pat was invited as the guest of honor, and I'd never met him before. I was extremely, you know, tough to be in the same room with him. Um, I love Name of the Wind. I was like, just really curious who this dude was. And we had, uh, who else was there? Um, ML Brennan was there, Saladin Ahmed was there. So it was a really cool room to be in. We all ended up playing Small World at some point after one of the convention bands. Um, but in, in those sorts of situations, at least, my, my read on it is like, you know, be friendly, have as good a conversation as you possibly can. Um, say at some point when there's an appropriate space, hey, I just really love your books. Thank you so much. Because um, everybody's going to say it sooner or later and you kind of have to. Um, you know, if, if, if that is your truth as it was mine. And I kind of left it at that. Like this is now I think of I walking away from that weekend. I was like, what, what a cool dude. I was really glad that we got to spend that time together. That's something fun. Um, and, but there was no like conversation around, Oh, well, you, you should read my book or whatever. Um, I assume that he picked up a copy of it because we were hanging out or in the wake of us hanging out, thought, Oh, I'll see what this guy's doing. Maybe he's sort of good. Um, or at least that was a fun conversation. I, I do this a lot. And um, and yeah, so it was extremely kind of him to mention it. I, I saw uh, the Goodreads post that he made about it. Somebody like texted me when it came through. It was really cool. That's awesome. You have a lot of fun, you know, oh, wow. A whole question's forming, I promise. Um, no, it's cool. It's cool, man. I'm thrilled. That I haven't I eaten through. enough and, and this okay. whiskey is really uh, running at me. So like... Keep it going. Um, no, I am so fortunate. We are so fortunate. We get to meet all these amazing authors like yourself. Like I totally fangirl out. Not as bad as Mark does. Mark I, is actually sorry. taking it down a notch. He's, <laughs> but we fangirl and we get to meet some of the most amazing authors like yourself. And we can sit here and we have this thing where like when it was presented for you to come on the podcast, I mean, there's all these side conversations nobody gets to hear on the podcast where we're like, oh my God. 
Yeah. And I'm very cool. Like, yeah, it would be cool if you came on the podcast. Like, the scenes were like totally nerding out. But the one thing I found um, is I have not once met somebody who is not just an amazing person and amazing to talk to and not like, oh, you're lucky to talk to me. Let me bring my ego in the room with me. You know, like, <laughs> I find writers to be some of the most humble people in a way to talk to so real versus, you know, I've done TV stuff, I've done stage, I've done plays, I can meet local authors who literally, cool, you've got a resume that consists of like a little three county area who walk in as if the, the world is like waiting for them to be there. And I'm like, you've been in five plays. Who are you? Mailman <laughs> <laughs> no number two, you know, yeah. no. <laughs> exactly. Do you mean cop? Yes, <laughs> mean cop one. Um, did you feel like when you go to these things and you meet these people, do you come in almost with the sense of, you know, you're there, you're you're gonna have fans come and approach you and stuff, but you're meeting these people that you're like, I love these books. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, totally. It's, I, it took me a very, it took me a while to be able to wrap my head around it. Um. And I was, oh man, how even to approach this question? Uh, it's, it's, it's very strange. It, it's, it's also strange because I think anyone, even a pretty voracious reader these days, and by these days, I mean like the last 25 years is unlikely to have read everything that's going on in the field, right? Yeah. The, the sort of among others kind of golden age science fiction, not, not actually golden age, I guess there's new wave science fiction, but that period you could have conceivably read every single book that came out that was science fiction or fantasy in that year. Um, and that's just not, not the case now. Um, one of the things, uh, I think this is, this is actually a definition that Joe Walton and Ada Palmer quoted at me once for a golden age and only offering as, as attribution, because I think it's really cool. It's an age in which that everyone who's operating in a field can be aware of and engage with everybody else's work. Like the field needs to have a certain level of technical proficiency, but then you know everyone who's in it. So there's the grand conversation. And right now the field is just a little too big for that. So you, there, there's this sort of uneven distribution. There are people who I've met who are delightful humans who sell tons of copies of books who I had never read them when I met them. So they were just, oh, this is a person who I'm having a beer with at, at, a, at, a, at a party. That's great. This is cool. What, what a neat person. And then eventually you find out, oh, wow. Whoa. Okay, yeah. cool. That's, <laughs> that's by far the preferable one for me yep. personally. Um, I, I just, for a while, I, I got extremely tongue-tied whenever I would be introduced to someone who, whose books I just fell over for. Um, the the worst example was early on in my career i had just i had been hunting for something that pushed some of the same circuits in me that i was trying to push with three parts dead whether i got there or not and it had been hard to find something that was in that same vein and i got a copy of iron dragon's daughter and read it oh. the week before ReaderCon and was just just blown away like man if i can do a tenth of this in in a hundredth of this in like many books, <laughs> I will feel like I have accomplished a, a thing with a capital T here, right? Like, oh, there is, 
it's like there is oil in this well, that, that realization. Um, and I was having a beer with a couple of friends and this guy walks over to the table with the, the I think he had an arrowhead around his neck and then like sort of scraggly gray beard. Oh yeah, this is Michael Swanwick. I'm like, oh. I don't think I spoke for like half an yeah. hour. I was just kind of like holding my hand out <laughs> like a dog waiting for a treat or something. And he, he like, you know, was perfectly decent, kind, uh, cool human being. I was just in the process of trying to figure out how to speak without being a goon. Um, it's <laughs> what I ended up doing. And I don't know, maybe uh, what I ended up having to do was like operate in this sort of, split universe where there's like the the person who wrote the book is on some fundamental level inaccessible to me right now here at this bar the i i can meet someone it's very weird do you, do you guys feel this way like you meet someone and you've had like a 10-year relationship with them all the time yeah all okay. the time it's i mean i guess that, that is kind of this right you're yeah it's like we're okay. talking and, you know we we've been we go back we go way back yeah. <laughs> well, I think that that partially has to do with the comfortability with yourself and being able to be there and enjoy the thing. I think, you know, I, I've had fan people like fangirl moments on me, right? Yeah. And I will say that I love the enthusiasm and the energy, but it's almost like they're not having a conversation with me because they're like talking at me really fast about what they're excited about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you're like... And then you got imposter syndrome just boiling all the time anyway. So you're sitting there going, wait, why are you in line for me when <laughs> yeah, right. you know, this guy over here has been on 12 TV shows and yeah. all that? And you're, yeah, did you see George R. R. Martin is like right over right there? there? He's yeah, right exactly. there. He's right there. Yeah. Alan Kushner is right there. <laughs> but, and I think it's amazing because those are the people that blog about you and talk about you and you know make their friends and buy your books and give them to their family over christmas like those are those yeah. guys but i think at the same time if every single person came at you like that mm -hmm. it would be very hard to sit down and just have a conversation with somebody and i think that you know because a book is not necessarily you're not a tv star when you're a book and not the same thing you're just not a tv star when you're an author mm -hmm. meaning your face is not always everywhere you know and i think there are some authors you know that i've i've talked like pierce anthony is one of my favorite authors in the entire world i love pierce anthony who by the way said as soon as covid's over i can go to his tree farm which is in florida and interview him oh amazing Yes, Excellent. I just can't be responsible for killing Pierce Anthony. Pierce Anthony with COVID. No, 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 yeah. But he thought the whole concept of me coming out to his house and interviewing him on his tree farm, he was like, I can't use the internet, but if you want to come out here and do it, that's cool. And I was like, this fucking Pierce Anthony just told me I can come to his house. Dude, like, that's, uh, that's awesome. You know? Do it. I mean, once it's safe, but do it. Once it's safe, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to kill Pierce Anthony. Yeah, so. that was our problem as we were getting Ben Bova, and now, you know, that oh, happened. Gosh. So oh. it was, I'm sorry. Yeah, we did his last book signing at a bookstore down here in uh, St. Petersburg that I the, that I help out at. And um, and we had him last year, and they got an award and all this, and we were like, great. And he was going to come back this year, and I was going to get Erica. You know, we were going to go interview him there, yeah. and, you know. Well, uh, things happen. Gosh, what a, uh, what a loss. It's fun to travel beyond the stars. And right. uh, 
and what an amazing man though and it's just like and so that's where we're like well we can't do that to peers no 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 <laughs> peers. can't do that to peers but what's interesting i think um and different is when you sit down and you talk to the the welcomeness that can happen you know i just think that's amazing and i i found that well i i and i have too i mean i think there are I, I love it. I mean, authors have been extremely kind to me. I try to pay that forward to readers and to fans who come up. I think there are a few things going on there. Um, when I started off, I, I got very, like as a, as a sort of survival mechanism, I, I could feel a tendency to be kind of dismissive of, of my own work or like, oh yeah, it's fine. You know, thanks so much. It's great to meet you. Because um, as you say, you're aware that I don't know, my first signing that was my first sort of not at a local bookstore signing was at New York Comic Con and it was me. And then there was Kim Harrison and then there's Kim Harrison's line. And I was right next to Jacqueline Carey and then there's her line and her line was full of um, extremely eager, uh, goth looking young women who are going up and talking to her about like, your books changed my life. And I was like, oh man. Uh, you know, I, I signed five. That was cool. I, I was very happy with myself. But, you, you know, so you, you sort of start building a, a sense of perspective to survive. But then the reader's relationship is with you and it isn't with you. Like in the same way that you are not actually, even though you're the same sort of meat puppety kind of entity that was involved in doing the actual typing for your books, there's... um. The, the, the lines of the books converge on an author that's not exactly the same person as is sitting at the convention table. Yeah. Um, your books can be wiser than you by a great deal. They probably are. Your books can be smarter than you. If nothing else, your books are your attempt to condense nine to months to a year of your life into something that an average reader will experience in eight to 14 hours. So think about how engaging cool, fun to hang out with, uh, kind, generous, you could possibly focus yourself to be in a whole year for a day. <laughs> if, you could, if you could condense all of that into one day, that's the person that your reader is meeting. And your job, so in a way you're like a vessel for that as the person who's present at a signing or in a conversation. You know, you've been, you've participated in the creation of this book and the reader has done a lot of the, a lot of other heavy lifting. And your job, as at least this is how I see my job as the person who's present in the signing or in the panel or whatever, is to respect the experience that the reader has had and like be, uh, be generous and allow them to have the moment of connection with this thing that you are involved with but aren't co completely co-eval with does that make any sense no it totally 100%. does I, mean, I think it's the point that people fall in love with your work they generally don't they don't know you like right you, not every there's some authors that are very good about the social media and you can get to know them and stuff but they don't no matter how much they think they know you as an author yeah and everybody has everybody has a line you know even people yeah. who are extremely on social media have lines i know um, I know authors who I would think of, who I once thought of as being very public and sherry with their lives on social media to the extent that it made me uncomfortable. And then I would meet them in person and realize that there were 
elements of their life that were completely off grid that were never mentioned even when stuff that i would think of personally as being you know very sensitive would be mentioned there's other stuff that was just completely off grid um so so yeah it's it's weird there is that parasocial relationship that people develop with with authors and with um i don't know youtube people it's uh it's interesting it's and i don't think it's I don't think there's anything wrong with it so long as everybody involved recognizes that the um, the public facing entity is not really the same thing as the fleshy person who's who hopes and sweats and fears and makes ramen noodles and whose job is to sort of create the persona. Yes, and who writes the book in their pajama pants that they haven't changed in three days. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. And like sometimes the book that you're writing is like... You, know, you got to figure that Dashiell Hammett, who's writing these books about people and like impeccably tailored, you know, I was just rereading The Thin Man over Christmas, nice. like you do, right? Classic. And, um, you know, so you got to you got to figure that like all of these suits and all of these cocktails and all of these extremely swanky hotel bars and, and parties and the, the speakeasies and that whole universe. And Dashiell Hammett sitting there in the, you know, 1930, 1927 equivalent of like sweatpants. Uh, you know, banging the thing out like two cigarettes at the same time. You know that that doesn't change. I think the classic I, I, the boxers and the change. fedora and the you know the the underwear. Right. Oh, and like sometimes this is the thing that I think is kind of pernicious for young writers coming up um, is that sometimes the um, sometimes there are not exactly lies, but like exaggerations or mythologizations of the composition process that sneak in yeah. the big one that springs to mind is is kerouac and the on the road scroll right so the myth of course is you know is that jack kerouac wrote all of on the road in a single draft on benzedrine listening to bebop music on the radio on a big scroll of butcher paper and there is some truth to that in that the scroll of butcher paper exists yeah. but he'd written like six complete drafts of it beforehand i see i see, yeah. I see you guys nodding I just in case anybody out here doesn't know the yeah, story in case they don't know yeah yeah exactly. he'd written like six seven drafts of it beforehand he'd gotten those drafts extensively critiqued after the butcher paper scroll was done it was heavily edited um so there there's a lot there's truth in there but the truth is not if you want to write on the road what you should do is get yourself a scroll of butcher paper and some benzedrine and just no, I, I think it's the the reader fans more than the writer fans that go. I like the mystique or the mystery around mm -hmm. the idea of this situation. Yeah, that's a very good point. We're excited about how they think you do it, and you know, don't realize again that we're sitting in pajama pants for four <laughs> days, and we have plates around us, and we maybe have gone through a few bottles of wine, and voila some of the story erupts out of us and then there's the stuff that we put together like one of my favorite parts and i was talking to a friend of mine um yesterday who's an author about this point is we talk about the little bits and the little bits are the connective tissue that we put into a book sometimes that are just connective tissue to us we've got to get from a to b so we throw this thing in there and then the some fan thinks that little piece of connective tissue or that one barista at the thing or whatever the crap, that little <laughs> dot and speck yeah. is like I'm tapped on the map me. with the spider web. Yeah, oh God, yeah, yeah, that's the secret. It's the secret to it all. That's it. <laughs> that one word. 
Yeah. Was, oh man. It's, it was an and instead of an an, and that's oh, it. That all the difference. Oh, galaxy brain moment. Yeah. Exactly. And they literally come up to you and start talking about this, yeah. and you're like, "What?" Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. and of course you can't disavow and go, "I have no idea what you're talking." About. <laughs> Sometimes it's, we've memorized all of our books. We yep. think you right. Have right. Like, I don't remember writing that line. Sometimes I do, but. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's the the fan sees the empty space that they can pour themselves into, right? I think part of the attraction of an extremely um, systematized epic fantasy universe is that you can see exactly that you can imagine what your character would be or the kind of person you would be in that situation. Um, I, as a kid, I loved and still still do to this day love the Robert Jordan books in part because as big as that world is you can also very clearly imagine like I, I you know my my story character would be like maybe he's a, like maybe he's a, like a Shan Shan monster rider but isn't cool with like the Shan Shan stuff and he's going to run away and join the the join like Rand's and you know you, you can you can have there there's this um more there's like a lexical world that you can enter. You can start thinking about descriptors for characters, like who, who someone would anchor onto. Areas that the narrative doesn't touch, but that still exist because the lines of the world building point there. You think that's um, and that, that's a way for a fan to push themselves in. Or, you know, I, I've stumbled into um, uh, MCU fan fiction on AO3 a while ago and was shocked by how central Darcy, who is the um, Natalie Portman's grad student from Thor and yeah. Thor the Dark World, uh, played by Kat Dennings, I think. So mm -hmm. how central Darcy is to like a huge chunk of the fandom. And it's because she's not a terribly created character. Kat Dennings does an amazing job of giving, like she's got great comic chops and she's a really fun person, but she's fundamentally just like a grad student person um, who makes snarky comments and is, is great at that. But then that's something that the fandom can sort of enter or identify with. Some, somebody who a, a way to see yourself in the story yeah no i agree okay so um i have a, gr a good question um yes gaming because we're, we're getting near the end of at least round one of the podcast do you still game you mentioned a lot of games i actually played the sword of truth role-playing game oh wow okay excellent like i have some i'm major nerd cred i'm actually playing a role-playing game with dan wells tomorrow oh cool cool dan wells is started GMing games um, during the pandemic because that's amazing creative, which is ridiculous. Oh, man. plus I get to play a role-play game with Dan Wells so that yeah yeah that's super cool I'm so glad I am so glad that that like professional and semi-pro GMing is a thing that exists now yes. it's so yes. great it's uh yeah I didn't even, I was anyway I interviewed him he's like I do this thing and I'm like what let all of my nerd um fly no. <laughs> <laughs> do you still game at all I do, yeah, yeah. Um, more than I, more than I did before the pandemic, actually, because everybody's being in houses all the time makes a certain kind of scheduling easier, even though we can't game in person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been an active tabletop gamer since, um, well, high school, and even before that, I was like didn't have anybody to play with, but was eagerly reading the second edition rule books and you know Davis Kid back in Nashville, Tennessee, and that still existed of blessed memory mage. yeah yeah i mean it was uh i love role-playing um role-playing is sort of where a lot of my storytelling instincts come from and come back to that feeling of 
wanting to create a world that engages players who are readers, wanting to keep a story driving forward so they have some place to go, understanding what their expectations might be so that you can subvert them or play off of them, making sure people have a good time. Um, that's whenever I start to feel my writing pulling in a, um, I don't know, there's sort of the, the black hole of like endless contemplation. Yeah, am I doing this, that, the other thing? Just it, it's centering for me to run a game. To play in somebody else's game is great. To run a game is like the best thing because then you remember when you see somebody's eyes light up, like, oh, that thing. I want to I wanna try to ride that. And you're like, oh, this is why... There are a lot of peop reasons people tell stories and engage with stories, but like you can see all of them at a good table. And of course, if even a very straightforward, you know, the, the, the mayor's cat is missing and you need to track it down to the dragon lair kind of story, like it's great. It's, um, it's what we have in the modern world in place of firesides and... Yep and tall tale telling um I, I really think that's true and i think it's amazing because it's i have a friend that wrote a it's a four book series it's three books and then a like a compendium of short stories that was based on a dungeons and dragons game we played that's awesome yeah it was amazing and it's a vampire romance set in a fantasy time because her character got changed into a vampire long story but excellent what was really amazing in reading it is for those of us that were in the game i.e. me one of the people <laughs> and reading it it it's such a great fantasy story like it's a yeah. fantasy vampire elven like there's all the you know all the elements all the elements goblins you know it starts in the middle of a goblin war it's great but um it's funny because when i started reading it and i was like oh this is really and i got to this one character and i was like wait a minute <laughs> is this is this me <laughs> and, <laughs> that's great yeah it, it was but it was so much fun to see the creativity and what she did with it because it didn't play exactly along the lines of, mm. you know, it went a different direction. But um, I think that sort of creative outlet, however that creative outlet works for a person is phenomenal. And I think people underrate how much imagination goes into tabletop gaming. Oh, of course. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, uh, there's a, a, a trope or a conversational topos that I think is maybe a little regrettable of, of sort of putting down like, oh, this is just your D and D campaign as a as a book, uh, like, which I've in, I engage in myself sometimes. But I think what people mean by that is there is a there is a um, a glorious and live thing about playing in a good tabletop campaign. There's a, there's a feeling of spontaneity and energy and improvisation and generosity that can very easily get lost in the transposition to books if you just try to write everything down. Um, and in, because they're very different media, you don't have the players there to feed off of. You don't have the theatrical focus and energy. You don't have copious quantities of Mountain Dew or whatever. Um, uh, and so, so, so it is. It is sometimes tricky to make that translation, but it's storytelling. It's all storytelling at rock bottom, and wonderful things can grow out of can grow out of tabletop gaming. Yep. I mean, you know, the Empress of Forever is like 
it's not an adaptation of a game that I ran, but it's explicitly dedicated to the, you know, to the good question, which is the ship of the Star Wars game that I was running all through college. Very nice. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's connecting on that level. Very cool. Okay, because we have to wrap up. What is advice you would give to authors? I don't say young authors or new authors. Advice you would give to authors out there, like the nugget, the gem, the little pinnacle of truth. What are we, what are we telling them? Uh, that's a really good difficult of a question. No, 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 no. It's not too difficult. It's just like <laughs> thinking about one, uh, man. Um, whatever you want it's your podcast you okay yeah it. no sure here right here I'll, go ahead this is this is the closest piece closest thing i can come to a piece of to i think what i think is a piece of universal advice it's um finish things yes. whatever it is you're doing whatever it is you're working on finish it get to the end of it um why do i say this because finishing writing endings is a skill just like writing beginnings just like writing middles Endings are um, some are often under discussed, I think, in craft advice and especially in like how to get an agent, how to get published kind of advice, because frankly, they're not a part of the book that most agents are going to look at. They're not even a part of the book that because the agents will be looking at the first 50 pages or even the first three to determine whether they're hooky enough, whether they've like whether the chops are there. They're a part that's very hard to edit well because a proper ending, a good ending is bringing so many threads of the narrative and so many threads of the subtext and the, and the sort of deep structure together that um, trying to unpick that or figure out what's wrong with it is often an issue of like finding something that's going on three, 400 pages earlier in the book. And like any, and endings are a skill like any other, the more you've practiced it, the better you will get at it, the more comfortable you will get at it, and the more um, you will learn when you are two thirds of the way through the book or halfway or a third it happens to a different person with every project, but generally happens in a similar place to most writers I've talked to. And you're thinking, this is impossible. I will never finish this. It's undoable. You'll realize, oh, I've been here before. And you'll be able to stop take a deep breath and find your way through. And I guess that's the other piece of advice, which is just take that deep breath when you find yourself stuck. I think that is brilliant advice. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. You are most welcome. Okay, so um, if people wanna find your work, I know that you're not prevalent on the social media. But <laughs> not recently. Well, we, we um, you know, we had a, we had our first kid two years ago and it's been an amazing ride, but I've had to make some pretty sharp triage decisions about how my time gets spent, especially in the pandemic without access to a lot of outside childcare. Uh, so I'm not on social media a lot, but I am there at Max Gladstone on Twitter and Max.Gladstone, I think on Instagram. So if people want to follow me in the events that I start posting more, I do still post like career announcements and things on there. I also have an email newsletter for that's only for announcements right now on um, on my website, maxgladstone.com. And um, soon, once I get through this revision that I'm working on next week, 
hopefully. I'm thinking about starting a content newsletter, which will be a good way to return to the, you know, excitable blogging about science fiction topics and writing content, which I'll be posting probably for the first time on my announcement newsletter, and then I'll be running it off of a separate Substack. but that's the big plan right now. There you go. Sign up for the newsletter then. Yeah, yeah. Sign up for the the newsletter. I did. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. That is the fanboy. He's repressed it a lot on this. I'm giving him max cred for it, but he's like, I signed up for your newsletter. I'm sorry if if you've wanted to ask me anything and I've been like... uh, You'll get a a chance on rapid fire questions. Okay, rapid fire. Fantastic. Because I fail horribly at that. Okay, so um, you have been wonderful to have on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been delightful. Absolutely. Okay. So this has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Eric Lance. Uh, I've been Mark Munson from Mary Porter. And our, our guest has been Max Gladstone. And we will see you next time. All right. See you next time.